Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Most of us don't give the act of translation a second thought, and if we do, it's likely to be of a rather condescending nature, unhesitatingly saying things like, a translation is no substitute for the original, without even taking a moment to ask ourselves what, on earth, that really means. But David Bellos, professor of French and director of Princeton University's program in translation and intercultural communication, is different. The author of the best-selling book, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translation and the Meaning of Everything, David has many fascinating insights about translation, language, and what it means to communicate. Obviously, you know, most of the people who write to an author about the book is because they've got something to say, and it's usually, but are you sure about this? And I've had a lot of corrections. The, the paperback edition uh, has quite a number of corrections uh, um, from the first hardback edition. Okay. Um, and uh, for all those readers who've written in to tell me that I got this a little bit wrong, yeah, that, I'm very grateful, that's great, and, but that's what a book is like. It is a conversation with readers. And since I touch on uh, an absurdly wide range of topics, uh, <laughs> in most of which I'm not at all expert, it's not surprising that there are little tweaks and twiddles to make just to get it properly right. right. Um, I've not had any really negative letters or negative feedback. Uh, that's what slightly worries me because um, it seems to me that I do stick my neck out rather a long way and I do pursue some rather grand and general arguments and it cannot possibly be the case that I'm so indisputably right about everything that it wouldn't be possible to write a, a, a serious critique of my position. But I haven't seen that yet. Well, it's early days. Yes. Uh, that, <laughs> take heart. Uh, that, surely that can, that, that's on the horizon at some, at some point to engage further. 
Um, one of the things, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, but that, that I, again, as a, as a complete non-expert, found, found very amusing and interesting was what you said. Uh, uh, th there were some comments about uh, some Chomskyan ideas, so I don't know very much about Noam Chomsky, but uh, you, make, you mentioned that uh, in his, uh, one of his groundbreaking works, I believe it was in the 50s, there was this, uh, this distinction between sentences that were grammatically correct and sentences that actually had meaning, and there was this distinction between them. And, and, and his example for this was, colorless green ideas sleep furiously, I believe was the, was the phrase. And then within, I don't know, a very short time, weeks perhaps, there were, there were some clever students at Stanford that developed all sorts of uh, perfectly meaningful Context in which colorful green ideas sleep furiously actually is is completely coherent and and uh, you know perhaps even a beautiful or fitting metaphor for what it was that they were trying to say. Um, so I found this on the one hand very amusing, um, but then on the other hand, when when we were talking, and my understanding is that notwithstanding that, uh, uh, that someone like Chomsky and perhaps some of his other disciples might um, uh, might might just do not deny, the, uh, well, let, let me put it another way. Um, if, if I were in that situation and I were to say, here's my theory. My theory is that there are sentences that have meaning and then there are sentences that are grammatically correct and then there's a clear distinction between them. There are two classes, if I, if I understand this correctly. And then someone comes along and gives me a tangible demonstration as to one of my, my axiomatic sentences that are supposed to be strictly grammatical and imparts meaning to it, I have to say, right, well, that was wrong. Let's go back to the drawing board and let's start again. Um, and yet, my understanding is that that isn't actually what happened in the, in the linguistic community. Is that, is that a fair uh, assessment? Um, you put me in um, a delightful, unique position in my life to take the defense of Chomsky. This is not something I often do. Okay. But I will, to answer <laughs> okay. your question, take Please the do. defense of Chomsky. Uh, Syntactic Structures, 1957, is a truly revolutionary work about language. Uh, and uh, to put it in a very simple nutshell, what it says is that the, the science of language is about grammar, not about meaning. Okay. And... Uh, it is about mind and thought and the processes that have to be supposed to go on for grammar to exist or grammar and at that stage and actually you know right through the adventure of universal grammar there's no important distinction made between um, uh, what is language and what a language is. Uh, for me, that's the important thing, but the Chomskyan uh, side of things is perfectly coherent and perfectly straightforward, uh, doesn't bother with that distinction. And it doesn't want to bother with meaning because me meaning is about the world and all sorts of things that aren't linguistics. Um, okay. Linguistics in that... Uh, narrow context. Uh, narrow, I mean, they, they think very profound and, very, okay. um, uh, um, and quite revolutionary context is a study or an, an attempt to approach the uh, central, the core issue, which is um, the underlying structure of uh, verbal expression, and that's called grammar. So the point of Chomsky's example is to say, you have to leave meaning out. A, a grammar doesn't d deal with meaning. Sure. Because you can have grammatical sentences that mean nothing. Right. Yeah? Um, 
So that's the point of his example. It comes right at the beginning, and it's to clear away the, 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 the semantic complications. It's not what words mean. It's how how the grammar. Uh, um, uh, so no, uh, the fact that people can play with a nonsensical sentence and find a context in which it is not nonsensical um, is of no consequence to Chomsky. Sure, I mean, people do all sorts of things with language that aren't part of what his linguistics is about. I'm not a Chomskyan, I don't do that sort of thing. I'm, I'm interested in what, it is, what people do with language um, and uh, with the way in which language is actually part of human behaviour. It, it, it's integrated into all sorts of things that um, have nothing to do with grammar, but to do with interpersonal relations, to do with uh, expression, to do with commanding and obeying and promising. And, and that's not Chomsky's... But, but uh, I'm sure I've misunderstood something. But from my naive, ignorant perspective, um, surely the, the the whole motivation to communicate, surely the, the, what we're doing right now, well, hopefully what we're doing right now, <laughs> is to be is to be exchanging, imparting meaning at some level. I mean, isn't isn't the whole when when one talks about looking at language and 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 doing it in a meaning independent way? Um, I, I'm not. I'm not even sure what we're doing when we're doing. I don't even know what the point of of, of that whole exercise is. When I when I talk yeah. about, I mean, we can argue about some of, argue perhaps is the wrong word. We can we can probe uh, certain aspects of to what ex, to what extent where we can define meaning and and how universal things are and so forth and so on. But the very idea that we're going to study communication, we're going to study language, and we're going to say, well, I don't care about meaning at all. Um, that's like saying we're, we're, we're going to study physics, but we don't care about the natural world, to me. I mean, I just, I just don't even understand what, what we're talking about then. We're just talking about sound waves that are being uttered back and forth, or, or some formal structure that can be imposed on things? Anyway, this isn't about... But well, this I, is my I, level of confusion, I suppose. Uh, yes, uh, and it is a confusion, and it is a great uh, division in, in, in the world of the study of language. Um, I'm not competent to give you a, um, a more eloquent or more detailed uh, exposition of the neo-grammarians' pursuit of universal grammar, which they continue to do. I mean, sure. Well, it's an academic discipline, after all. Indeed it is. And, uh, um, nor can I really judge how far they've got, but it's only 50 years, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the development of physics, 50 years is nothing. Um, uh, but one point where um, actually the neo-grammarians and my kind of more socially and culturally oriented uh, study of language uh, do actually well, they converge, they overlap, or they, they share one thing, which is, is, is um, doubt as to whether we really are talking about the same thing. Uh, communication is possible in all, through all sorts of channels and media. Um, communication, if the study of language is the study of communication, yeah, then uh, on the one hand that dissolves language into a much vaster uh, field of inquiry, uh, on the other hand it quite possibly misrepresents language, or rather, uh, you know, it's like, uh, as Chomsky said on Monday, because uh, he was here talking again on Monday, that it would be like trying to do the physics of the human eye by using material only from watching television. Um, uh, sure, we use the eye to watch television, and we use language to communicate meanings, 
but are you sure that's all we do when we are um, engaged in an act of language? I'm not so sure that mm. all I'm doing with you is imparting a little thought from here into head there. Um, uh, language has uh, uh, speech and writing, but speech most obviously, uh, has all sorts of functions that are um, not easily captured by this word communication. If you think of communication as the transmission of the telephone model, you know, something you know, sent from here to there, right. the Morse code model. So what, what, else um, could it, what else could it be when we're having a conversation? Uh, um, I, I, well, there's I a huge difference between you're saying what you've just said in that tone of voice at that pitch with that intonation and you're saying it in some other pitch. Um, I mean, if you were to stand up and shout what you just said, it would not be the same human interaction. Absolutely. The meaning would be exactly the same. Or rather, the, the, the linguistic meaning, or the meaning that you could deduce from it being written down would right. be the same. Right, right. But all sorts of things, you know, your relational things, uh, turn-taking, um, gesticulation, modulation of voice. I mean, there are all sorts of things going on that are not, that are, they're part of the whole utterance. They're part of the whole thing. Right. But communication is, to my mind, a rather, a rather misleading word to say that that's what's going on. When, when you, give, you give two very, uh, very interesting examples in, in your book. You have this scene from The Great Escape that you, you, you talk about. Um, when uh, these two characters have escaped a prisoner of war camp and they're, they're going through some checkpoint or whatever, um, and one of them is a German speaking, uh, one of them is German speaking and the other one isn't, and they, they, they're just about to, to get past the guard when the guard turns to, uh, to them and says, good luck in English. Mm -hmm. And then the one who is, I believe, non-German speaking turns back and says, thank you, and then they're caught. And, the, and, and then you analyze this and, and, and demonstrate, I think, very clearly that one of the interesting things about this is that it, it actually makes no difference what they're saying. Well, they could have said, have a nice day, and the guy could have said, thank you, or they could have said, your shoe's untied, and, and no, it's not. Or, or it, it, the, the actual words make no difference whatsoever. And, and so there's this sense of, of the meaning and the, the, core, mm -hmm. the, the core actually being... Um, uh, quite independent from the from the words, which is seems to be an extreme example of some of the challenges that have to go on in, in translation. That it's not you just don't look at word for word, of course, to be able to look at what this this word means that in this language and so forth. That you have to take the context. It's a clear demonstration of uh, yeah. Uh, uh, of, uh, uh, it, it's it's rather extreme demonstration because right. <laughs> it's word independent. To some yeah, that's right. Of the difference between the meaning of what is said and the meaning of it having been said. Right. Uh, you know, in the case of the um, of the guy who's not supposed to understand English but reveals that he does, it's not what is said; it's it's having been said in English. Right. Uh, uh, and as a result, if you switch off the soundtrack and just look at that sequence of the movie, no it's totally incomprehensible. Right. <laughs> and if you switch off the vision and just hear the soundtrack, somebody says good luck. Somebody else says. Thank you. So what? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I'm rather pleased. Now I, I would like to add something about that that I, I I didn't know about when I wrote my book, but I do know about now because the book has been translated into Spanish, and I've had a long interaction with my Spanish translator on this. Uh, the Great Escape obviously uh, has been dubbed into Spanish mm -hmm. and viewed millions of times in Spain and South America, and in the Spanish dubbing of it, the uh, German policeman 
and the non-German speaking English escapee say uh, good luck and thank you in Spanish. <laughs> It's interesting. And um, I, I quiz myself, how is this possible? I mean, uh, uh, um, these are not the Spanish escapees, sure. and the German police don't speak Spanish. I mean, how is this? Because it's so, not German at some level. Like, it's the, not, it's the not German, yes. I would think. No. <laughs> um, and my translator, Vincente Campos, who seems absolutely wonderful guy, um, uh, explained to me that there is a, like a kind of a, a convention within the Spanish language world that in World War II, World War II movies, uh, Germans speak German, but the Allies speak Spanish. <laughs> and that is to say, Spanish is taken to be, is understood as right. English. <laughs> or perhaps French, maybe, even. In the, yes. it is, depending yes. on what, what they're right. actually... And the, uh, actually the, the language barrier is between right. Spanish representing all other languages and German representing German. <laughs> so that uh, it's perfectly comprehensible in Spanish, even though the Englishness of it is right. not revealed is because the, the Spanish soundtrack is taken to represent Sure, English they just make that link automatically yeah. In, yeah. When, they're, when they're watching. So that's something I didn't know, and it just shows the extraordinary uh, flexibility and variability uh, and cultural specificity of these kinds of things. Uh, we can do all sorts of things with language that seem to be implausible and impossible, but we can do them. Right. Um, one of the... One of the things that uh, that's captivating as a as a reader is that you don't just talk about translation in a in a in a theoretical context. Indeed, uh, not so much strictly because you're you're a translator yourself, but also because it seems to me that um, there are no hard and fast rules. There is a certain sense of working with something, trying something, playing with something, and and much of what you talk about is to give the reader a sense of what translators do, mm -hmm. as opposed to this overall formal structure. This is what translation is, um, and in particular, the, some of the some of the things that that certainly struck me was the sense of how one is able to convey a style mm. of uh, uh, of an author or a set of authors, and and also how one is able to convey humor, because humor is something that a lot of people will will think well that. That surely can't be done. You can't, you can't convey a pun uh, using from one language to another, or you can't. Humor gets lost in translation. And one of the things that I thought was uh, particularly enlightening for me is that you give tangible demonstrations. As actually, no, you can do that. It takes a lot of work. You have to think about it. But there are ways that you can you can somehow manage to do that. And and one gets a sense that. That's part and parcel of what a good translator actually does, has to roll up his or her sleeves and, and work as long as it takes to be able to find this right, this right match, as it were, in, in, in humor. And you do that with, with a specific example, yeah, correct? Couple, but you must have, you must have seen, you must have seen, I mean, this, this must be very hard work for you to, for, for you to do on a, uh, oh, for, of humor. It's like everything, you know, it, 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 it seems impossible until you've done it, and then it seems quite easy. You know, like retrospectively, right. you can't quite recall how long it took. You know, or sometimes it just comes to you, or um, you know, it goes around in your head. For, is that one of the um, hardest things to do? Is is humor one of the hardest things to to translate? You think? No, no, I don't like these. What's hard? What's easy? Um, I, I'm doing a translation course, uh, a very practical translation course, with some senior students at Princeton this semester. Actually, every Tuesday and Thursday, and we're we're, we're working with texts of very different kinds. I insist on them doing very different kinds of things. 
bits of advertising, bits of journalism, fine bits of writing from novels um, uh, and high literature, um, uh, you know, non-fiction um, stuff, some very well written, some not very well written. Um, and it isn't true that anything is easier or harder than anything else. Uh, they all have their specific types of problems that you have to get your mind around. Um, uh, when you get into the run of it, you can become a good and fluent translator of journalistic prose, but that's because you're learning to write journalistic prose in English. Um, so, no, I don't like the sort of scales of what's hard and what's right. easy. But, um, uh, the, the, everything may, everything and anything may, at some random point, suddenly become very difficult. And you know, oh, I but don't you know would, how to but, do that. But you um, wouldn't generalise it. I wouldn't generalise. Humour is uh, on the on the other is a special case, but it's not as special as most people make out because you know, humour, on the one hand, is a very broad thing. I mean, there are many kinds of humour, um, and on the other hand, it's a very fragile thing. Uh, I mean, lots of jokes um, that I make, my granddaughter doesn't get, uh, even in the same language. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, uh, why should a joke travel from A to B? Sure. Uh, because it's not, um, uh, it's never guaranteed sure. of being received, even in its own language. Sure. And, and one may get it, and one may not think it's funny. No, absolutely, <laughs> that's right. So it's a very fragile and... Uh, right. and uh, um, and there are various kinds of humour, you know, slapstick humour, physical humour, scatological humour, uh, funny stories about the Belgians that are exactly, for the French, exactly the same as British stories about the Irish or Danish stories about, um, uh, or the Swedish stories about Finns and so forth, which are very similar and that you can do in any language. And the poor Belgians get it from both sides, of course. They get it from the Dutch as well. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so there are lots of kinds of humorous or comical um, uh, anecdotes, stories, um, joke structures right. that are eminently transportable and right. where their linguistic texture isn't nearly as important as uh, the, the, the deceptions that they involve or, or their timing and surprise effects and so forth. All that kind of humour is no more easy and no more difficult to translate than, than a story. Um, what we boil down to when you want to talk about you know, really interesting translation challenges are obviously uh, uh, um, humorous and other uh, forms of expression that refer back to themselves, that, that actually use the words of which they are made as right. uh, the focus or the, uh, the turning point. On, um, um, and yeah, there you have to be quite imaginative. You have to jump, as it were, and transpose right. and find something that will turn in a similar way, but obviously it has to turn on something else right. because the particular word that's being punned on is not present in the translation. So you made that. Th there was uh, the one in particular that you mentioned in the book, I believe, was this, uh, uh, was this quote, or, or was this sign? Yeah, that's uh, right. The, 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 the joke visiting card. Right. Adolf Hitler, Fuhr, right. this French word for furrier. But it's also the way the French would pronounce Führer. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean... I'm and you turned it into... I apologetically chose an example from my own <laughs> translation. Okay. I turned that into Adolf Hitler, German leader. Right. Um, and, okay, it's not the greatest joke in the world, but it, it's okay. Well, it, it works. works. It, it, it works. It, it, it works. And, um, uh, 
the translations by Anne Theobel of the comic strip cartoon Asterix into English are also full of uh, inventions far better than mine. And she has a wonderful uh, ability in that very constrained format of the, the comic strip, because you've not got much room there. Right. It's got a, a physically fit as well, of finding something that, that is a good, a, a good joke in English that will stand in lieu of a good joke in French. Right. Um, um, yes, I mean, you could say that those, those things are translators' nightmares, but actually they're not really. They are, they are the translators' um, uh, cherry. Uh, they're the fun bits, because when you get them, you feel so pleased with them. <laughs> <laughs> and when you don't, of course, uh, either the entire text becomes pointless if, if, if it hangs solely on a joke and you don't know what to do with it at all, uh, or nobody notices. Hmm. Um, yeah, no, you know, if, sure. if there's a joke missing, right? They, they won't. They won't. Of course, they won't. They won't pick it up. But, but I mean, it is probable. I mean, you know, there's a nice little speculation, um, which I, I've speculated with other people on this recently, and I still don't know the answer to it. But um, the English literary tradition prides itself on its comic dimension. There is a strong self-awareness in English that. You know, the great tradition, Dickens, to Julian Barnes, <laughs> um, Lewis Carroll. The, the British and the Americans are very good at, at, at comedy in literature, at, mm -hmm. at, at integrating uh, uh, comicalness into um, high writing, you know, from Shakespeare through to, uh, sure. And that, you know, French and German are altogether more serious. You, know, you don't go to French literature or German literature. So have a laugh. Have a laugh. <laughs> Now, this is possibly an effect of translation. Hmm. That translated literature is, by and large, just a few degrees less humorous than the original. Do you see what I mean? I and do. that actually the argument may be entirely circular, that English literature is neither funnier nor less funny than any other literature. You're just reading it in English, you see. You're just reading it, <laughs> and you're not getting the jokes, right. because the jokes and comicalness I mean, I think what's much more difficult or delicate or, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, uh, tricky uh, in this field is not so much actual jokes, you can ask it, you know, funny anecdotes, but humorousness. Sure. A, 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 well, playing with the language yes. or circular references or what That's have you. That's right, enjoying that. I mean, you know, I've, I've been reading Martin Chuzzlewit recently, which is Dickens' funniest novel, and there you can't really put your finger on it and say, that's the funny bit. Right. He's telling a joke right here. You don't, yeah, you don't, no, you don't do that with right. Dickens. But there, there, there is a sense of playfulness with language, right. um, entertaining you with the oddities of the English language all, right. all the way through. And it, it's that kind of semi self referential, semi metalinguistic sure. um, lightness of touch right. that you can never be sure you've really got across into that language. And um, presumably, you have to have a, a very, very, of course you do, but a, a, a an extremely deep awareness of all the subtleties of the language to be able to to, to bring that out, which of course you have to do anyway. We have when a you're judgment, to yeah, a judgment of where, where that lies, and of course people's judgments may vary as to how funny Dickens is. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure, my granddaughter isn't funny, funny at all. You know, some you're kind quite, of you're quite, you're quite, you're, you're picking on your poor granddaughter. She doesn't I seem know, to find anything I'm funny. Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm just using an example. No, that, that, you know, even, even within people who know each other quite well, there are huge differences in in, sure. in, in what is funny and what is not. Sure. So in in the in, in the reading public of a uh, of a piece of literary fiction, the responses will vary quite substantially. The translator has to make a choice as to right. where where to pitch that, and it's not surprising if most translators 
as you pitch it a notch or two below. Uh, because the one thing you don't want to do is to make it seem ridiculous. Um, you, you don't want to overdo uh, the comedy. Right, of course. You don't um, want to make it too broad or, or yeah. anything like that. So, yeah, maybe the idea that the British literary tradition is particularly marked by its talent for comedy is really uh, just a, uh, a, uh, a secondary reflection of... Um, um, the unawareness that people have that Tolstoy and Chekhov and Cervantes uh, didn't write in English. Right. <laughs> some of them aren't even aware of that. I mean, um, <laughs> F. R. Leavis, the great tradition, does refer to um, uh, Tolstoy as the greatest novelist in the English language. Um, uh, it's a little slip in the first edition, uh, but it's a very significant slip. That the to the extent that foreign writers are really integrated into, into um, the, the cultural field, um, their foreignness is forgotten right. about. They're completely... Um, there's this wonderful, uh, this wonderful part in your book that uh, you, you talk about that. To appreciate foreignness, some people actually want to have foreignness when they pick up a translation, but to be able to appreciate foreignness, you have to have some familiarity with the culture itself. And so um, the, you, you make this joke about to, to, to understand this is a foreignizing translation from German, you have to recognize the, the German sentences at the end of their, or the, the German sentences uh, uh, at, at the, the end, end of their, their verbs put. Right. <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> exactly. yeah. Which shows, I mean, you, you have to recognize that, otherwise it's not funny. If, yeah, if you want something, yeah. or, or it's not recognizable, you, it's difficult for you to recognizable that something is typically Zulu if you don't know anything about, about, about Zulu. And then there's this, this wonderful... Well, that's something I rather expected to have a, a big argument about with uh, other people, but it hasn't really happened yet, so I'll have that argument with myself. Um, <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, it depends on your orientation, but if a, a book is presented to you through its jacket and the blurb around it, you know, this is a, a great new work in English from uh, Outer Ruritania, uh, giving us an authentic expression of Ruritanian worldview, and the English is slightly odd, then you will interpret that as Ruritanian-ness. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be told what it is that you're learning. Right. Uh, By definition, this is the, the what you see. What you see that seems odd to you is Ruritanian-ness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and and that of course nobody ever reads anything in a complete vacuum. Um, things do arrive with the you know surrounding aura. Um, and I, I think I would argue, could argue against myself there and say, but on, on the contrary, uh, especially in English, which is a language of so many different dialects and varieties, um, uh, many novelists do effectively teach us what it is like to be Nigerian or South African. Uh, um, and you do learn. I mean, it can be a learning experience. And, um, well, it's a learning experience, but it's not, I, to, to argue, to argue again against your, your new self, um, it's, it's not something that they, uh, the, the point it seemed to me was that you recognize it, to say, ah, yes, that's German, or ah, yeah, oh, that's typically French, or, or yes, this is a typically French scene. It's, uh, there's a sense of recognition, and the only way, of course, you can recognize whether that's typically French, whether you're right or wrong, is if you have some preconceived notion. Yes. To be told in advance, well, this is, this is what I mean by Ruritanian. Whatever yeah. is in this book that yeah. is odd to you is Ruritanian. Yeah. Is, is, is more, seems pedagogical in terms, of, in terms of that. But, I mean, it just supplies that general Absolutely. framework that, Absolutely. That, 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 that would otherwise be missing. Absolutely. Um, 
but th there is a to and fro between languages that can happen through through the vector of literature and which can be uh, um, enriching in English. Sure. Uh, um, but I suppose it really, you know, it all comes down to the fact that, that a written text on its own tells us very little about where it comes from. Uh, you have to know something sure. <laughs> before you can do any of this interpretation. Sure, it's this whole context or meta-context yeah. or, or, or what have you. There's this wonderful part in the foreignness I just wanted to highlight because I, I, you mentioned this, this, this guy, Adriano Salentano, I think his name mm, was. That Salentano, Salentano. Sorry. Uh, that, that had this, this, this clip where he's speaking in what seems to be English and he's doing a little routine and he's dancing and there are girls dancing around and so forth and so on and he's supposed to be a, a, a pop star. Um, and it's not English. It's, it's, it's just babble, but it sounds, babble, yeah. it sounds, it's, it's like the Chaplin uh, yeah, bit. It sounds perfectly It is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, it really is something yeah. that, that you should immediately go to YouTube and watch because it is, it is just absolutely hilarious it, 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 It's uh, linguistically, intellectually, a very interesting uh, little act um, in that it shows that you can use the phonemes of Italian to <laughs> mimic the phonemic structure of English right. without speaking, obviously without speaking English. Sure. Because uh, um, it's not an English. Not English. <laughs> well, no, the whole point we lost if it were English. Right. Uh, it, it, because um, the transcription of those lyrics in Italian, because they're meaningless in Italian in any other language, but it just happens to be those that, when pronounced aloud in Italian, sound like English. Hmm. And, you know, in theory, you know, languages have different phonemic structures, they sound different, they use different sounds, but of course they overlap, you know, there are some sounds are similar. Right. And it's extraordinarily clever to pick exactly those sounds of Italian, which can masquerade as sounds right. of English. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's not given to everybody to find the, the, <laughs> right. um, the path, the, the path that will allow you to do that. Hmm. Um, so what does that prove? That proves, yes, that you can sound foreign by not saying anything at all, if you are good at making foreign sounds out of your own linguistic resources. There, there's one other uh, anecdote. You, you had mentioned constraints before when you were talking about the cartoons and so forth. Um, and, and one of the constraints you mentioned is this notion of subtitles in space and mm -hmm. not to have the subtitles bleed onto the screen. And you said something else. Uh, apparently there's something known, and I just think this is worth pointing out, um, um, uh, that I've told everyone I know about, uh, called the Bergman effect. <laughs> so there, there is this notion that that uh, of, that that once you make a film, uh, there are issues about translating in space for the actual uh, subtitles on the screen, and that this can actually work the other way around in terms of causality, so that a director can be thinking about the space of the subtitles uh, actually while shooting or designing the film, and 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 I don't know. Well, serious I, I, to, to, to take this, but I mean, yeah. there, there is a sense no, that there's maybe a, not cynically or, or, or not in that explicit way, but perhaps subconsciously aware that right. you can't put too much language on screen, right? Because if it's going to be circulated internationally through the medium of subtitling, then if you want all, if the dialogue is all important, then you've got to spread it out, right? So that um, uh, the Bergman effect is uh, um, a uh, who knows whether it exists, but it, it's a hypothesis, right? <laughs> <laughs> that the um, um, that the um, the image we have of Swedes as people sort of seriously verbally challenged depressives right. um, <laughs> is actually in fact that anything people have seen of Sweden are Bergman's movies, and that Bergman made movies for the international market that 
you know, for, for they're artistic, not really commercial reasons, so that the whole film can be seen. You, 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 you have to not have too much language going on in any one sequence, otherwise you wouldn't be able to get in the subtitle. Right. Um, with another class just recently, we were looking at um, Slumdog Millionaire, um, you know, the, uh, uh, that amazing uh, movie set in Mumbai, and mm-hmm. which is itself um, linguistically very hybrid, because it's part, part Hindi, part English, right. um, the, the star is Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were looking at the Spanish subtitled version of it. Uh, the French did a dubbed version where everybody mm-hmm. speaks, not Hindi, not English, they just speak perfect French all the way through. And that, that flattens the movie very considerably because you get a lot of information from the voice track. Right. Uh, the Spanish, you've still got that voice track, but you've got Spanish subtitles. And we did notice how cleverly the film is done in the way that it cuts from sequence to sequence. There is enough room to put pretty much all the dialogue into subtitles. Hmm. Um, and it's part of the art of the film director's art of editing and cutting um, uh, and using sounds and noises as well to fill in gaps between speech. Um, so uh, maybe we shouldn't call it the Bergman effect, maybe we just call it the common sense of uh, the makers of movies who need an international audience to know that you know one of the constraints on their art is not to overload the dialogue uh, in, in dense patches, right? Uh, because that will be necessarily deleterious, squashed. And, sure. And, and, yeah. But there's also this point that that when Bergman is making movies, the theory, or at least the claim, is that when Bergman is making movies for a domestic audience, he doesn't worry about this at all, and and that has a, a substantial effect on the on the types of films that he actually makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be a little more dialogue. They tend to be chattier, and a little bit lighter, much jollier, which is not something that, uh, as you said, people would uh, naturally associate with uh, with Bergman or Swedes in general through Bergman's <laughs> work. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. When y- there's a sense of the translator, um, obviously as a, a as an active participant in 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 the in the process, to the extent that when you come out with a translation. It's also your work. It's translation, but it's your work, and it's done in the in the Bellow style. Um, and so there's this question of of you as a translator. Again, getting back to the sense of what a translator does, as opposed mm. to what translation is. <clears throat> when you're a translator, you um, um, your job is to so correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is your job is to faithfully reproduce the the work. Uh, in this language, and one can talk about what faithfully reproduces mm. is in a match, and you do, of course, at great length. But and so it is. It is the the work of. Uh, it is a faithful reproduction in language X from um, from this author. But it is also a work by yourself. There is a, yeah, there is I wrote two it. aspects. Yeah. Of it. Um, and has your style. So there is there there is the style of the writer. There is also to some extent the style of you. It has your style. Uh, as a writer, as a translator, changed in the in the years that you've been translating, and if so, how? That's not a judgment for me to make. I mean, if, if anybody's interested in twenty years' time, uh, they could do a stylometric analysis of the entire output. But does it feel does it feel but different when you're? Did you feel that you're doing things differently in a translate uh, from a translation perspective? Well, um, no, I. Uh, Certainly, 
feel more confident now than I did 25 years ago that, that what I write is going to be okay, but that's just the effect of getting older and experience and right. that it has been okay. It is a dialogic, it's a two-way thing. I'm sure that my uh, command of the English language and my ability to write it has been formed by all these foreign writers that I've had to translate. They have made me learn different things and different nooks and crannies of English to find where thing I've been doing just recently um, is set in the 1950s, which is, you know, when I was a little boy, I, mean, I can't remember what army slang in the 1950s was, mm. um, uh, one in the army. Um, so I had to go and look it up, I had to go and, you know, I had to educate myself, recess, and of course I can never get completely right. My only hope is that there's nobody actually left from, there was any army in the 1950s, <laughs> so, but it, it needs to sound now like 1950s army right. slang. Right. And that's, you know... That's a little different uh, than perhaps what... It may be a little different. Right. Uh, uh, and that, that's one of the reasons why the question of authenticity that people raise so often um, uh, really irritates me. Uh, the true authenticity of you know, what conscripts in the Algerian war would have sounded like in 1956 had they been uh, soldiers in the British or American army seems to me completely pointless question. You, sure. you can't know that. You sure. can't ever know. What you can do is try to simulate now something that will summon up images of the language of soldiers of the 1950s. Right, but for the people now. Yes, yeah, for the people now, that's right. right. Um, of course, what I have learned, and yes, I suppose what has happened uh, uh, through the history of the books that I've translated for the publishers I've translated them for, and also through my uh, transposition from Britain to the United States, uh, is that I'm much more aware now of the varieties of uh, English, of the, of the multiplicity of Englishes, and of the difficulty of finding a, a, a middle form, a central form of the English language, that is neither American nor British, but will be taken as both. Uh, the language of translations into English. This is, is your Tranglish. Yeah, <laughs> it is a stylistic feat, um, uh, which I could, uh, I think when I started doing this with Penny, it was just obvious to me, you translate into English. <laughs> I, I know what English was. <laughs> no problem. Uh, no problem, English is what I write. You know. But 25 years later, I don't know what English is. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm much less uh, sure of my ground in saying this is English and this isn't, or this is good English or this isn't. Or indeed, this is British and this is American, because there are all sorts of strange crossovers. Um, and it comes down to little details, and I'm very, very glad to have had the services of copy editors, both sides of the Atlantic, um, who've helped me a lot with that of producing texts that are readable and enjoyable both ways around without causing offence or being incomprehensible. Right. Um, uh, sometimes, you, I mean, there are some things you just can't do, where it's either British or American, either European or American, and that's to do with um, the floors of the house. I mean, um, you can't be ambiguous about ground right. floor and first floor. There's no, there's no term that would be. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some things where it either has to be European or it has to be American, but there's a whole, a very substantial range of expression and style right. uh, where you can, with a bit of craft, you know, put it in the middle so that it, 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 it works both ways uh, okay. without being completely colorless. That is a problem of translation into English that uh, uh, doesn't exist into French where there is a much 
I mean, there are varieties, obviously there's many varieties, but, but there's a, a, a much stronger concept of what the central language is and, sure. what, and, and how a thing should be written. Well, you have an Académie Française, of course, and you don't, you don't have the counterpart in, in, yeah, in English. Right. I'm, I'm going to switch gears and ask you uh, a different sort of question that I've been prompted to ask, which is, why don't we all speak one language? Um, the answer to that is because we don't want to. And I'm quite sure of this. <laughs> As we all know, uh, any human infant can learn to speak any human language. Uh, they do. Um, and we all know that there is nothing genetic about this. It's not because uh, you are born to a Chinese mother that you are predisposed to speaking Chinese. Sure. Um, now, there's some argument about where the process of language learning begins, and some people would maintain that it does actually begin in the womb. But that doesn't really matter to my argument because, again, it's not, it, it, if it begins in the womb, it is through external stimuli that are, that are perceived. Sure. So the language that you learn is uh, the product of external stimuli. Um, uh, that's to say the environment in which you're born, and there's no more reason for you to learn uh, Chinese than to learn English and vice versa. Depends where you start. Uh, so the language, the human language faculty is uh, uh, capable of uh, uh, generating and producing and, and living in any language. Um, the, 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 there's nothing, there's no destiny about it, there's no fatality about it, Absolutely. there's absolutely nothing genetic about sure. it. That, that's point one. Yeah. And I think that's, that's universally agreed upon. I don't think there's anybody yeah. that, would, that, would, that would, well maybe there is, but I, n nobody reasonable. But, but I think people don't then necessarily go on to the next step in uh, thinking about this. Um, but we all speak different languages. Mm -hmm. We could all speak any language, but we all speak in large groups differently. Within a given thing that we call a language, you know, actually everybody speaks different, uh, socially, regionally, down to clan, street gang, family. And yes, well, this is a natural process of you know, dialect But then get even closer. Apart from the distinction in pitch of voice in adults between male and female voices, which is physiological, mm -hmm. you know, but even there, that there's considerable overlap, but no, the typical pitches of male, apart from that, there's no reason why in the same family, let's say, we shouldn't all speak exactly the same. Mm. Because we all have the same external stimuli, we talk to each other, but we don't. When I ring my sister up on the phone, she says, hello, brother. She knows who it is amongst the thousands of male voices she's heard. That, um, and she said, oh, well, that's the body. Well, it isn't, actually, because we know that if you want to, you can talk exactly like someone else. Meryl Streep is absolutely Margaret Thatcher. If you train yourself, well, not, if you not make the effort... I was going to say, not, not, not too many people have the, quite the range that Meryl Streep does, but I, but I, but I take your point. One, one can... We one can all can. be Meryl Streeps if from the uh, critical age uh, we train ourselves sure. to be Meryl well, Streeps. Okay. But we don't. Right. Because we don't want to. Right. That's the point. Because, think about it, how useful would language be if we did sound alike? If Uncle Jim and... Auntie Josie sounded the same when they were calling to you in the dark. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know which was which. Right. And that you know, deep 
down at the very bottom of you know what language is for kind of thing. Um, it's obvious that human speech is a form of self-identification, and that that accounts for this very obvious fact that we not only don't bother to speak like our parents, sisters, brothers, neighbours, we deliberately don't. We deliberately develop a form of diction that identifies us as us, uh, right. me as me, and you as you. Right. Um, whilst remaining close to, whilst also signalling a particular identity. Right. You know, me as sort of educated Brit, and you as educated Canadian. So, uh, um, um, sometimes down to a very, very fine um, uh, geographical or social identity, uh, sometimes very broad one. But always, you know, when we speak, um, whatever we say about our social or regional geographic origins, we are also at the same time saying to people whose social and geographic origins are identical, it's me, not you, right. that is speaking here. So they're all different levels, it seems. It seems I mean, there's the, there's the personal level of, of us identifying within the family, as you say, <laughs> within the context. Yes, you're announcing yourself. I'm, I'm this individual. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, this also works, as, as you mentioned, at a, at a, at a community level. Mm-hmm. So you, you, it's, it's this, this notion of language being used as a way of distinguishing uh, yeah. one group one from group the other, from one another. person from the yeah. other, and as a, as a deliberate distinguishing mm-hmm. factor. Mm-hmm. So if language, if the only way we think about language is as a means of communication, as you were saying uh, half an hour ago, right. well, all this would be completely useless and pointless. Um, and language would be a totally different kind of thing if it were mm. just a mode of communication. Right. Uh, just imagine if you and I and, 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 and Dave over here and Pascal, the, 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 uh, our voices could not be distinguished from each other. We'd have to do. We'd have to live in a totally different way. Right. It would be quite. Actually, it would be quite nice to do a sort of TV documentary. Reality show on this. The reality shows never have anything to do with reality. No, but this, no, this one no, also wouldn't have. But no, it would be, would be an hypothesis unreal, show. An reality <laughs> show. Uh, 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 because you could do it now with technology. Uh, uh, people speaking to each other. You could distinguish. Tell right. what voice is what voice. What would they have to do to live in a house to live together? It would be something different from the kind of human relations uh, and social relations that we now have. Well, they would presumably, I, I would hypothesize, since this is the hypothesis show that, that, that you've delineated, I would hypothesize they would, they would probably do more exaggerated things with their body language, with the way they held themselves, with the way they would move their hands. Uh, to take I, your point, they, they, there is this need to distinguish somehow, and so you would try to... No. I don't know. Maybe we just had totally different kind of human relations. It'd be a different kind of society. Hmm. So uh, this is a very simple argument for saying, well, it is in the nature of language to be different. Um, the other trend, the push towards making language the same, standard languages, written languages, um, you know, is another dimension of our social organization and cultural lives, but then they're in permanent tension. Um, translation is what goes, is in the middle between these two things. Mm-hmm. It represents these two tensions of, of, of being completely unique and of being shareable. Um, and that's why it's so interesting. Um, but it really, does, I mean, it really does annoy me when people um, start saying, oh, well, it's terribly simple, you know, translation, you know, it takes a meaning from this one and that. Um, um, it's not quite so simple. 
Well, I mean, one one of the ways again that you that, that I remember you you in, in, invert is that you you say that sometimes in order to understand what the meaning of something is, you actually have to translate it. So there's a certain sense that that that, that translation is meaning in, in in what it is that you're. Well, maybe, maybe I stick I stick my neck out even further. I say that the not sometimes. But that in the last analysis, the only way of uh, truly asserting that something has meaning is to, to translate it. Of it. Because th that is the test of meaningfulness. If it is translatable, it is meaningful. And if I want it's not translatable, it must always be questionable as to whether it has any meaning or not. I, w I wanted to get to that because that's, that's, that's an, to me, that was an interesting idea mm. um, and somewhat provocative idea. I don't know if this has been found provocative in, in your circles or if, if, if you're considered to be, uh, if, this, if this, is, this is a common view that's held in the, in the world of translation or if, or if this is more your particular view. Maybe I should just start off asking that. Is that, is, is that view that you're enunciating now, is that something that most people would hold in the translation world or, or is that more your own thing? Uh, you know, I sometimes forget where I pick up my ideas. <laughs> um, and particularly in this translation book, I know I have used all sorts of things that have come to me over the years from here, there, and everywhere, and I haven't always been able to track back exactly where I first sure. thought that. But the idea of translatability as the validation of meaning, uh, I have found or refound in the philosophy of somebody called Davidson at Oxford. Uh, but he's a very difficult person to read, and his uh, commentator, uh, uh, an Australian philosopher called J.E. Malpass is the person I read on this. Um, so he's his translator? Uh, he is indeed his expositor translator and makes him at least more accessible to folk like me, or has done so. But I, I think the idea has a much longer history than that. It's just that I'm not very expert in it, in uh, philosophy. But um, I think the the perception that meaning um, has to be validated, um, to say something has meaning, must, isn't something you can just take as a given. You say, right. how do you know that? Right. How do you test it? How somehow? do you test it? Um, and and the, the you know, test for meaningfulness as a, uh, it's the possibility of transcribing it into some other symbolic system. Um, I think that's an idea that is, is, a, is a 20th century uh, English philosophy idea, mm, so rather than, um, I mean, the ancient Greeks didn't think of those terms at all. It sounds more like an analytic philosophy type of, it sounds more like an analytic philosophy type of. And I probably picked it up when I was a very young man at Oxford, being surrounded with the um, clouds of Oxford philosophy that were going on. <laughs> um, but uh, wherever it comes from, uh, um, it seems to me a very important idea. Um, if only because it allows you to grapple with that uh, one of those other nostrums or cliches that were always thrown about in this field about the untranslatable. Right. You know, just what can you possibly mean by an untranslatable word or sentence like that? Because uh, there, if it truly were untranslatable, there would be nothing you could say about it. Right. So how can you possibly know? Right. Um, the, 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 the logic of the arguments about the untranslatable. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, irritate me greatly. Okay, so th there's this, <laughs> I'd love to explore your irritation. Um, 
So let, let, me, let me see if I can uh, get a sense of things. So there is this thing that you mentioned called the axiom of, of, of the ineffable. The axiom of effability. Effability, right. And that we owe to, to, to um, uh, Jerry Fodor, an American philosopher. Right. So, so, the, so the basic idea, well, why don't you tell me what, what, what the axiom of effability, the, the basic idea as I understand it, so tell me, tell me where, I'm, where I'm wrong. So the basic idea... Oh, it's very, very simple. The, the basic idea of that is to say that, well, insofar as we're studying language, um, uh, um, anything, uh, we take language as uh, uh, having the capacity, the potential, to express anything and everything that human beings might want to express. Right. Um, and insofar as something is not expressible, it is not within the field of language. So anything that I can think of, uh, I, can, I can express in language. Yes. Any thought that I have, I can express in language. Any thought, any feeling, <coughs> any state uh, you can, uh, that a human can have, uh, can be expressed in a human language. And then, and then the, the, the syllogism seems to be to be that any language can be translated into any other language. Is that, is that a fair...? Well, uh, uh, that's the one I meant. Uh, right, okay. Uh, that what can be said in any language can be said in any other. Okay. So, so otherwise, you would have to presuppose that there were different kinds of human beings. Right, but then... You know, that that you, were, you were a Chinese person who could think Chinese thoughts, or you were an English person who could think English thoughts, feelings and states. And I, I won't have that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> because but, there's no evidence for it at all. Um, but here, here's something, so that I have two, uh, I guess there are two issues that I, or, or, or two, two points that I'd like you to clarify for me, rather than issues that I have. Um, the first one is to, is to push the second one, second aspect of the syllogism that, that you have by giving an example that, that, that came to me as I was reading your book. And then I'd like to explore this idea of how language, which seems to me to be related, language impinges on our thought. So, and you mentioned this a little bit in your book when you talk about the, the notion of, uh, uh, of Plato, of a platonic hopi, somebody who would, uh, and, and, I, and I think that's a very, that's something uh, that I've thought about a lot, I'm sure many people have thought about a lot, how are our thoughts actually structured by the language that we, mm -hmm. that we speak, mm -hmm. and would it be possible for us, or would we necessarily have the same sorts of thoughts if we spoke a different language? Mm -hmm. um, but before I get there, I wanted to just, just work on the syllogism just a tiny little bit, because, so here's this idea, I have a thought, any thought I have can be expressed in a language, so maybe I don't understand what a natural language is, but, and then, and then your claim that any thought I can explain in one language, I can explain in another. Otherwise, mm -hmm. there would be some fundamental asymmetry between Chinese and English and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So, but what if I have a thought as a mathematician? So I have a, uh, I have a theorem. Mm -hmm. Now, the thought that I have, so I can express this to some extent in mathematics. It seems to me when somebody wants to understand what I've done with my theorem, um, and they don't know mathematics, and they're an English speaker, then I try to give examples of, uh, of that. I try to give metaphors. I try to give some kind of homily, whatever. I, I, I do whatever I can to try to describe things. But I know I'm not really getting to the heart of things. I'm just giving some kind of loose yes, description. That's not the real thing. Yeah. Right. Of, no, of, the real thing is in math. Right. Yeah. So uh, here's the first part of this. I've had a thought, and I've expressed it in a language. Now, the language that I'm using as a language is mathematics. Mathematics is uh, not a language. Mathematics is mathematics. Uh, we don't need to say what it is. It is math. But if it's not a language, then... Just as music is not a language. Music is music. It's a wonderful, complex thing human beings can do. But you can't 
um, you can no more translate music into uh, English prose than you can translate the language of ants into English prose because you know, they are different things. Okay, so it's not a language. Fair enough. So then your, your second part that once it's expressed... Well, it is not language in the important sense that uh, I want to deal with. It's um, sure it is something that can express thought. Uh, mathematics does express thought. And within mathematics, there are always more than one mathematical way of writing some propositional theorem. You know? Mathematics rewrites itself all the time. Sure. But it, it's not useful for the purposes of our discussion to try and include um, uh, formal symbolic things like maths or expressive symbolic things like music or painting or dance or all these you know, generically different things within the field of language if we want to understand language because, uh, you, know, they, you, know, they, you know, why not the rustling of the trees and um, the noise cars make? Sure. Uh, they're, they're not interestingly language. But wasn't the first part of this, which wasn't yours, but wasn't the first part of this by this, this American philosopher, whose name I've forgotten already, mm -hmm. uh, wasn't the first part that any thought that I have could be expressed in a language? Mm -hmm. So aren't I saying, when you're saying the rustling of trees or, or, or poetry, uh, sorry, maybe not poetry, poetry no, is a bad no, example, no. Um, yeah, some, some musical phrase or my mathematical theorem, uh, isn't, aren't those examples of things that can't be expressed in a, in a language then? I mean, once they are expressed yeah. in a language, I, I'll grant you that you can map them, that's your, that's, that's your claim. But haven't I given examples or aren't we talking about things that really can't be expressed in a language? Um. Well, I guess that's for the cognitive science people to come up with a, a, a convincing. But what do you what do you answer. think? What, what, what is your what is your feeling about that? Well, I think the principle of effability does um, you know, run up against this problem that right. there are many human mental activities that result in things that look like expressions. You know, and indeed you call them mathematical expressions or musical expressions. Right, 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 right. But the, to my mind, they are radically different from uh, uh, those uh, uh, things that are expressed in language. Um, radically different because they're, they're, they just exist in a different medium, different sure. mode. Um, and I don't think that really undermines Jerry Fodor's principle of effability. Um, okay. uh, you know, I don't want to say that you know, uh, music is ineffable because we can't say what it means. It's just music. It's something different. Um, it, it, there's no earthly reason why these other um, forms of um, you know, um, cultural activity should be transmutable the one into the other. But language can cover all the needs that we wish to make of it. Sure. Um, sure. So there's nothing language-like that we can think or formulate that cannot be expressed in a language, and what can be expressed in a language can always be expressed in any language. Right. So that that I'm I, I guess I, it's just it's just for me in my mind uh, I see. Uh, so I suppose it pushes I, back the boundary. Of right. What, exactly. Uh, what, what is language? What is language what like? Language, yeah. Right. Yeah. So so I, I'll grant so you once you're language like degree of circularity. Right. Of the definition. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so let me let me talk about this this, this last thing, which about the the, the Platonic hopi, which I've been I've been trying to think of a lot, uh, uh, and um, and I think this has a 
this has some, uh, it seems to me that you have a, a very strong sense of universality of the human condition. That's something which is very clear from your writings and, and you're talking that there is a some, some level, we are, we are all the same, there's no hierarchy, there's this notion of the British Empire of we are the people who think in the superior way and, and we use the superior language and uh, there are these peons, uh, these colonials, what have you, that can't possibly uh, be able to think our, our high enlightened thoughts because they don't have the, the right language. And no, so no, the, the, we send them to school and teach them to be... Right, yeah. to, to, to think properly and yeah. so forth. And so, and so there's a deep sense uh, that one gets from reading your book of, of, of the, the importance of, of a fundamental egalitarianism. Not, not, not political correctness, but a fundamental awareness of the universality of the human condition. And in fact, the, 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 the enormous uh, power, the liberating power, the translation actually serves to be able to, to connect this one group of equal people to another group of equal people who have a different cultural context and so forth and so on. Um, and, and, and yet, when I think of so you give you give this example of Hawkeye, which and 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 my understanding. Well, I borrow the example sorry. of Hawkeye from so, Benjamin uh, Wolfe. I'm sorry. Who made it famous. Everybody quotes him, um, and not always correctly. So I just tried to use the the story about Hawkeye evidentials um, sure. as, as an illustration. So you have to you have to understand that I'm 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 a complete non-specialist. Right. So I, I don't understand <laughs> any of the any of the the, the I'm baggage. I'm nearer to being a non-specialist than you guess. Well. <laughs> But here's here's the, so so there's a sense that uh, that to a Hawkeye, so correct me if I'm wrong, the farmer killed the duck, mm -hmm. is a is a sentence that uh, that that can't be said in an unambiguous way. In it can't be said in Hawkeye. You have to add something because okay. you have to know whether the farmer is uh, present, not present, or only a matter of report because the grammatical form of the word um, uh, has to be in one of those three cases. Right. Just like in English it has to be definite or indefinite. Right. Well it doesn't have to be definite or indefinite in Hoppy. In Hoppy it has to be um, It's Hoppy, not Hoppy. So I said Hoppy, I, was oh, I don't know. I'm not Actually, sure. I don't know. <laughs> not speaking of Anglo. <laughs> okay. Hoppy. Sorry. I think I call it Hoppy. But anyway, there, there are you can take any other language. Uh, right. There are there are a couple of dozen languages around the world who do this that that mark the evidential status on the noun. Yeah. So uh, the farmer I can see has a different grammatical form from the farmer I can't see. Okay. And there's a third grammatical form for the farmer you told me about, right, uh, and similarly for the duck. Right. So you you can't translate the farmer killed the duck, that set of information into Hopi without adding some information. Right. And the English sentence just doesn't give you enough information to say anything in Hopi. But from a Hopi from a Hopi Hopiist perspective, um, presumably that means that there's no linguistically there's no abstract sense of duck. There's the duck that's here, there's a duck that was over there, there's a duck that I can't see, there's the duck. Um, and, and this that's is really what... No. That, that's not right. Well, I don't think so. Because okay. look, I mean, in Latin, you, you can't say the word man because, just like that, because it has to be either in the nominative, accusative, genitive, dative, or ablative case. Right. Uh, and you can't generalize and say there is therefore no concept of man because you've got the, the six cases. I see. Uh, you know, no, I think that's, that's, um, a, that's a step too far. That's, okay. That's jumping too far. Um, that you're trying to make Hopi conform to an English concept of uh, you know, what a thing is. And there's no reason. Well, well, I'm really trying to... Um I'm really trying to understand whether it can conform to a Greek sense because mm. I want to get to this platonic, mm. and I don't 
sadly, I don't I don't speak Greek. So, uh, so we can go, go, going out on a bit of a limb here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but my sense is, and 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 you mentioned this yourself that be, that because of the structure that 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 had Plato been writing in Hopi, or had he yeah. had you taken the he, same he'd individual, probably have thought different thoughts. He, yeah. Right. And so there's a sense that you would not have had Platonic philosophy. Uh, there is the claim that that you would not have had Platonic philosophy had he been raised in, mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in the Hopi world. So if left up to the Hopis, you don't have Platonic philosophy. Now maybe this is a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, <laughs> but, but it's a thing. Yeah. Now the argument that I'm trying to get a grip on there is... is it, uh, you know, when you have a, a, a balanced view, and again, as in so many other things you ask me about, I see this more as a matter of tensions and dialogue and movement sure. back and forth. Sure. Um, the argument made by Edward Sapir, uh, who's one of Worf's colleagues, but also a far, far more um, important thinker than, than Worf, was a great um, uh, linguist of American native languages and came up with lots and lots of material. Uh, Sapir was a much broader field. Um, Sapir's point is not that the grammar of the language that you speak imprisons your mind in particular ways of thinking but that it does actually incline you to... I mean, some things are easier than others. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some things are more repeated and therefore reinforced all the time. Uh, in English, we always have to distinguish between the definite and the indefinite. And you know, no doubt that you know, inclines us to um, philosophical um, views that are, that in which that distinction is of importance because it's just easier to say. Uh, Greek and Latin and the languages derived from them um, that, you know, have devices within them that makes it easy to jump from a verb to an abstract quantity you can, you can, and jump from a noun to an abstract quantity, to jump from an adjective to an abstract. You, know. you can say this man is just and you can easily invent the word justice, the quality that a just man has. Um, um, and you know we've inherited that into English because we brought a whole lot of Latin. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, but you know, most Indo-European languages have, or you can add ness to something to, to, to as abstract from a, uh, uh, a describing word to the quality that is granted. Um, and that structure is not necessarily the structure of the world, but it makes speakers of those languages um, actually uh, inclined to describe the world in those terms because it's easy. Because right. it's language does them. Yeah, you use this this um, expression mind grooves. When yes, you're, when you're these groove like these grooves are, um, you know, uh, dug again and again. Right. Um, Repeated by reinforced by language by, by and, and so forth. The language that you use. Right. The question is now. I, are, can you jump from one groove to another? Right. Is it possible? Is it possible? The question isn't really, why didn't Plato write in a Native American? In a sense, that's a silly question. It's a slightly offensive question as well. <coughs> it's just that... Um, could the Hopi... Could, could they actually understand Platonic? Could they, could they recognize Platonic philosophy? Well, Isn't that really the I'd question? Rather, okay, you know, sorry. Uh, oh. put the question the other okay, way around. Is, is that, you know, if you're a speaker of Greek or English or French or Latin, you are peculiarly ill-equipped to understand Hopi philosophy. Sure. Well, they're both they're, they're no. equivalent. No, no, no. Yeah. But they're completely symmetric, no. right? So ill-equipped is one thing. Is it possible? Uh, but is it possible? Is right. another. And I, I, you know, I, I'm very reluctant to say anything is impossible. It seems to me 
uh, how could you know this? That it was impossible. All you can say is, well, it hasn't been done. Uh, you know, the, the conditions for claiming something to be impossible seem to me to be uh, uh, very hard to meet. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so the existence you know, you have to be very, very sure of something <laughs> to say impossible. Uh, right. um, um, like, you know, never is a very long time as well. <laughs> um, and obviously it can't be true that you can never jump from one mind groove to another because if it were, you couldn't know it. Hold on. You can't, uh, if it were... I couldn't have explained to you the difference of Hopi from the Indo-European language structures. If the Indo-European language that I speak, namely English, didn't allow me to imagine another one. Sure, but it's possible that you, you, you can jump from some mind grooves to the other and not jump from all mind grooves to the other. Like it's possi possible, it's possible that there's a subset there are, of... There's, there's a point where you can't... Right. Right. Take, the, take the example of, of, that many of your viewers will find more familiar, the difference between languages with grammatical gender and languages without. Now, English doesn't have a grammatical gender. Right. Thank goodness. Uh, all, <laughs> exactly. All English language speakers find mastery of the grammatical gender system of, say, French or German or Spanish boring, burdensome, mind-boggling, and you're never sure you've got it right, right. you know, 100%. Um, and the question right is, is there some fundamental difference between being brought up as a speaker of French such that the issue of what gender is this never arises because you just know? Right. Uh, you know, can you ever really transit from that state to the other state? Can I, as a lifelong learner of French, ever really, as it were, have gendered language in the full natural sense that a French person has? Um, to which I don't know the answer, because actually the French do make mistakes there sometimes. Mm. Uh, there are a range of words that are on the fringes of right. <laughs> um, I, I don't know whether my grasp of gender is identical to or slightly different from that of my wife who was brought up in French. I don't quite know what form of testing could be carried out or from what point of view, where you could stand in order to judge that difference. Right. right. Okay, that's the problem about saying X could never be expressed in Y. Presupposes Z, the the position from which you can judge the difference or similarity. Sure, and you and can that's also very hard to uh, that have sort of a super linguistic cloud in the sky. Indeed, and you can only ever be in one language or another. And 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 worse than that, in a language, I mean, even if you have even if you have your objective metric, which is virtually impossible to determine, even if, to you, even if you even if you have yeah. that. Um, and, and you ask everybody you know, and they can't meet that criteria, uh, then you, you, still ha you still don't have a proof because there might be somebody else who comes along who actually can do it, you see. So it's, yeah. it's, 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 uh, so I think you've certainly earned the benefit of the doubt <laughs> of that um, particular clip. And I mean, also, everything's ideological and personal as well as intellectual and general. I mean, I also don't want it to be true that there are people who can think thoughts that by definition I will never be able to understand because I wasn't exposed to their language at a critical age. Right. Uh, that, that's not a hopeful position so, to adopt. So philosophically, much of this is, is, is linked to this idea that with enough effort, I mean, it's almost personal, right? You, you, you want to feel that you have, uh, with enough effort under the right circumstances, all human knowledge and all human thinking is accessible to you, yes. which is not an unreasonable, I think, perspective yes. or, or motivation to yes. have. Well, and, or and rather, the, the, the contrary 
Is that some is, is, is inaccessible? It, it, right? Yes, that there will be some. The country is. It, 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 it's a. It's not really counterfactual. It's it, it's paradoxical. It, it it has to be nonsense, right. because. How can I assert that uh, uh, there are people over there whom I will never understand? How, how would I know that? If I'm asserting I will never understand them. I'm, I'm, well, you can that you're boxing yourself in with a, a, sure. kind of a brick wall and um, sure. you couldn't ever know that you were right. But you might be right. Now, it might be... Uh, 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 Incidentally, the case that I will never get to understand them because life is short and um, no, no, that's something. No, 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 clear, football, clear. But, uh, uh, <laughs> you don't. That, do you? you don't spend your time watching football. Do you? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's that, that's not interesting. That's not sure. the point. But, sure. but, but to claim that in principle, right. You know, uh, there are little green men on Mars who have thoughts and communicate them to each other, but that I will never be able to know, I will in principle never know what they are. Well, that's an unacceptable position for all sorts of um, human reasons. Um, it, it, it may turn out that we never crack linear B, and it may turn out that we never, may have turned out that we never did crack Hieroglyphs. I mean, sure, but that doesn't mean that in principle they're uncrackable. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything else that I that I haven't asked that you're dying to communicate to people? Are there any points, subtleties that have been elided uh, worth mentioning? Is there anything? Well, there are some things in my book that are perhaps not developed enough. Um, and there are some things I've left out, and that I, um, I hope other people will write about as well. Well, will you, first of all, before I let you get back to that, do you, do you have plans to, to write more in this way, based upon the response and the voluminous mailbags that you've received and all the rest of this? Are you thinking yeah. more about, about another book? Uh, I'm thinking about another book, but not about translation. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about a book uh, 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 about fiction, about reading fiction. Oh. Um, but anyway, let me, let me get back. Well, um, uh, I do, uh, throughout the book, take a generally a positive and encouraging um, attitude towards the people who do translations, but I don't go on particularly about how badly they're paid and how badly they're treated, <laughs> because there are plenty of other books that do that, and it is true that they are badly paid and badly treated. Um, <clears throat> but I would, like, I mean, what we haven't talked about in this conversation is that... Uh, I really do think, especially in the English-speaking world, people who are not involved in translation should just stop for a minute and think uh, how much they gain from translators who do jobs that are not very glamorous, uh, but really necessary and uh, really worthwhile. Um, and uh, you know, I think it would be nice if uh, some proportion of our fellow men um, uh, and women in the English-speaking world uh, thought just a little bit more about all that goes into the world they live in uh, that depends or is channeled through uh, uh, people who work as translators. The people that I don't speak about in my book, out of, out of, actually out of ignorance uh, uh, and not out of um, unwillingness, are uh, those many people, uh, a lot of whom are actually volunteers, who work in courts and in hospitals in what's called community interpreting, in life and death situations. Mm. Um, 
where all the difficulties of translation that I talk about in the book are present, plus some, like um, uh, <laughs> being responsible for sure. communication for between welfare. a, a dying patient and a doctor, for human welfare, for getting somebody convicted or off. Um, uh, these, are, uh, these are real heroes. Um, uh, and uh, they're quite numerous, because, you know, there are an awful lot of linguistic minorities in the US and in the UK, and they had rights as linguistic minorities to have interpreter services. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me uh, important that uh, you know significant resource should be uh, provided not only to make these translators' lives uh, moderately comfortable, but also to support them. I mean, psychologically and humanly, they're doing really uh, stressful, uh, burdensome, painful jobs, and they deserve a bit more, a bit more recognition. Rec not a bit more, a lot more recognition, visibility, and and support to them than they currently get. Great. And uh, hopefully they will have it. And hopefully more people will also read books in translation uh, uh, as well. I mean, that hopefully uh, that, that will start happening more in the English-speaking world because that's certainly something that, uh, that I've noticed. We talked about that a little bit before, that in the UK um, there's a sense that that's becoming at least anecdotally from my, my perspective, as a consumer of books, when I go into a bookstore, I, I seem to have more options now in terms of uh, translations of contemporary uh, literature and, uh, and, and, and older literature, and hopefully that trend will continue not only uh, in the UK, but also throughout the English-speaking world. I sincerely hope so too, and I hope to contribute to it. <laughs> Great, well you already have. Uh, and and uh, thank you very much, it's been a, been a had a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Hart. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Language and Culture, along with separate discussions with Michael Berry, Nick Coldry, Dennis McQuayle, and Carol Patton. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.